Bible and turn it to Epistle of 1 John chapter 3. And we are once again looking at this third chapter in verses 11 through 18, where the Apostle John is dealing with the subject of the proofs of Christianity. And if you'll look at a very important key verse in this section, you'll, you'll see the tone and the purpose for this section. The Word of God says in the 14th verse, 1 John three fourteen, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So we have here another one of those key tests of Christianity. Uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that if you were to ask a person who's a Christian or a non-Christian, what is the most outstanding characteristic of Christianity, most people will say love. And if they're not thinking about the person of Christ himself or thinking about you in particular, they at least know this or know something about Jesus. They, they know that uh, they, they say he loved everybody. And they may not understand why, and they don't understand what type of love that is. But somewhere in the equation, they know that if you claim to be a Christian, you must be a person who's characterized by love. Well, as true believers, we we do have an understanding of Christ's love. We have experienced it. Uh, We know something about Christ's love on a different level than other people know it. And that tells us that we are truly Christians. Well, we're going to read these scriptures, and we're going to get into the message tonight to finish up this section that we've been on for a couple of previous messages. In 1 John 3, verse number 11, the subject is, again, this test of love. It says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous." Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I want to call your attention once again, to this very important factor concerning this epistle. It is a strong refutation against those who claim that they know Christ and that they have a relationship with him and that they have fellowship with God, while at the same time, they display no evidence of a change in their lives. And the passage is actually strong advocacy for the assurance of your salvation if you possess certain qualities, certain characteristics that line up with the evidence here that John presents to us as proof of Christianity. John labors again and again with the evidence, and he says time and time again, if you don't pass these tests, if you don't display a change of of character, a change of behavior based upon the regenerating work of God in your heart, then you can make all the claims that you want, but you're not a Christian. And so, 
1 John is a presentation of these tests. And I keep repeating that over and over again to you because every new section that we enter into, we're presented with these tests. So we're going to deal all throughout 1 John with one of these three tests, the moral test of keeping God's commandments or the doctrinal test of staying true to God's word, being faithful to the truth, and then also the social test, which is our interaction with other people. And the social test is the theme of this particular section, and that test is love. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And passing from death unto life would be the same thing as me saying to you, you are born again. That's what it is, passing from the old life that we have, that sinful life that we have, coming out of spiritual death, which is our natural condition, and coming into that new life that we have in Christ. That is passing from death unto life. So John then presents the truth in this section, which is really a straightforward and undeniable argument on, uh, on the love of God and our love for one another. Now, we began a couple of weeks ago with this, and that is the axiom of truth. Verse 11 says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And the axiom of truth is that truth never changes. What was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. That's never going to change. So John says, you heard this message, you were impressed with the message, you learned it uh, the very first time that you heard the gospel. You learned about love, and so if you hear something different, if you hear something different from the truth that's already been taught, then don't believe it. So if someone comes and he's practicing something different, don't believe them. If they teach something different, then don't listen to the message that they're giving you. Reject that. And indeed, this is the very purpose of John writing this particular epistle because there were some practicing differently. And there were people that acted differently. And so he just gives us this straightforward declaration that we have to hold on to what we were first taught and not accept any new revelation. And that is essentially what we are commanded in both Old and New Testaments. Both the Old and New Testaments uh, contain a command for us not to add anything or take away from what's already been written in God's Word. And that tells us that no one has the authority by a tradition to add anything to God's Word. And it also tells us that if somebody comes along with the invention of another testament and claims that came from God, reject it. If it's not in these 66 books of the Bible, then you reject it. That's the axiom of truth that we need to remember. And it doesn't change. God doesn't change with time. He's unaffected by time. And what we have in the Bible is the revelation of the immutable God. Now, after that statement, John sets forth this this glaring contrast between those who who don't know Christ and those who do. And he does this by giving us a worst-case example. If you're going to demonstrate the widest gap between the love of a Christian and the hatred of the world, what would it be? Well, it would be the worst case, which is murder. So secondly, his argument proceeds with the wickedness of hate. Hatred is the defining characteristic of Satan. And if love defines Christ, then hate defines Satan. And if love defines a Christian, then hate defines a a, a non-Christian. If love defines a believer, then not having love defines an unbeliever. And so if you want to know who's saved and who's not... Here's another test. You attack it from this angle, from the standpoint of love. Now remember, John's already told us several different ways that we can see the difference between believers and unbelievers. And it always comes down to the issue of character. 
we act according to our character. And our character is our disposition dictated by our nature. So we've all been born in sin, and so every person at first has this sinful nature, which means that he has the character of sin. He has the character, what the Bible says, the character of the devil. And in verse number 12, the worst-case example of the sinful nature displaying itself in all of its negative glory, you might say, is the act of Cain murdering his brother. And Cain showed that he was not a child of God. He's a child of Satan. There's evil in his heart, and he killed his brother Abel. Why did he do it? Why did he kill him? Well, it's not because he didn't know about God. He received the very same instructions from Adam that Abel received. It wasn't that he didn't know what God required, because God told them both what they should do. But Cain decided he didn't want to do that, and he, was, he, he hated Abel because Abel was, was, was righteous. It wasn't because Abel provoked him. It wasn't because Abel had some threatening action against Cain. We know he didn't do that because the Bible says he was a righteous man. There is one reason why he hated his brother. His brother's works were righteous and his were evil. And that is the natural hatred of the human heart against all things that are godly. Now, we do need to understand this, that God is represented by his people. Christ is identified with his people. And just a quick reference to that, you can go to Matthew chapter 25, and there you find Jesus says that if you do something to one of mine, then it's the same as if you'd done it to me. That works both positively and negatively. You do something to one of mine, you've done it to me. Well, Cain killed Abel, but his motive was not really Abel at all. The real motive is the hatred that he had against God, and it just shows up in the murder of Abel. He's righteous, and he's God's representative. And so Christ says, you don't need to marvel about this. The, the, the world hates me, and it hated me before it hated you, so don't be surprised about it. So this is really the point. Hatred is an act against God. And no murderer, according to verse number 15, has eternal life abiding in him. And that means he's not a Christian. So if you hate people, you're not a Christian. Now, some people will take this particular part of the Scripture and, and they think, well, what, what, what's going on here is that it's proof against someone who is a murderer on death row. That a person like that, because he has killed somebody, he can never come to Christ. He, he's going to die and go to hell. This is not a statement about whether someone could receive Christ after murdering someone and they're on death row. They hear the gospel message and, and then they believe it and they're saved. That's not what's at stake here. What, what's going on here is, is not the forgiveness of God for the act of murder. That's not the point. The point is the attitude of the heart. It's that continual attitude of a heart that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Christ, by faith in that. And if you claim fellowship with God with no change, you're not a Christian. Well, people will say, well, fine. I must be a Christian because I never murdered anybody. I never could murder anybody. And you know the Bible disagrees with that statement? The only thing that prevents every person in this room being a murderer is the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit restrains sin even in unbelievers. And if it weren't for that, this place right here would be a place of murder tonight. 
In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about this and, and tells about how the Holy Spirit's going to be removed from the world during the time of tribulation. His restraining power over sin will be removed. And there you find in the tribulation time that men are living out to the very depths of the depravity of their heart. And there will be murderers, all kinds of murderers. Wherever righteous Abel is found, he will be killed. And it shows up especially in the person called the Antichrist who literally murders millions of people in cold-hearted cruelty. But that still might leave us wondering here, well, why the example of Cain? I mean, we all agree that murder is a horrible sin and we all agree that murderers are not Christians, so what's the point? We don't commit those worst-case scenarios. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you should remember that there were a group of people who fought the same things. They said, we don't do these worst-case scenarios. We're not murderers. We're not adulterers. We don't break God's commandments. We are really good people. And who were they? Scribes and the Pharisees. Exactly right. And so why does John take us down this particular path? Well, he goes here because the axiom truth. Truth doesn't change. The truth from the beginning is that God gave a righteous law that people were to live by, and what man did, he came and he perverted God's righteous law. God gave us all the expectations that he said that we are to live by, and man broke God's law. So Jesus came along, and he expounded the law, and he revealed God's original intent. And do you remember that he had something to say about murder? In the Sermon on the Mount... He gave the declaration of God's law. He said, this is the way things are in my kingdom. This is the way you have to live to be in my kingdom. And then he began to explain the seriousness of this matter of murder. Now, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment to some familiar scripture. And if you'll look here in verse number 21, Jesus has been correcting or he begins here to correct the interpretation of God's law with teaching about murder, what he'd just done was to tell them about righteousness. And he told them that they had to have a righteousness that exceeds the best of the very best. And he gave them a a standard that none of them had ever lived up to, none of the religious leaders could live up to. And he said, if you don't have this kind of righteousness, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. But then he starts talking, verse 21, in correcting their misinterpretations. He said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, he says, whosoever is angry with his brother. Now, let me ask you something. Who, who was angry with his brother? Well, the worst case example of who was angry with his brother is this guy named Cain. I mean, that, that's his character. He's of the wicked one. He's of the devil. Now, notice there the comparison that Jesus takes the commandment that he says, thou shalt not kill, and he applies it here to the attitude before the act. Those who physically kill a man man, are in danger of judgment. But then he says to them, not so fast because it's not okay because you haven't just physically killed another human. You are also in danger of judgment because of your anger. So he's talking about the attitude of the heart. Murder is in your heart when hatred is there. And so if you have a murderous heart without even doing the deed, the heart still condemns you. 
Now, if you look back here in 1 John where we were in our text verse, just after our text verses in verse 20, it says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. So something has to be done to your heart. Your heart has to be changed, and the murderous heart has to be corrected. And again, if the hatred is there, you're not a child of God. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was relentless in describing how a change has to be made. Do you remember how he ended that chapter? He ended by talking about the narrow way versus the broad way. And he talked about uh, good fruit and bad fruit. And then he talked about houses that, that stand and houses that wash away. And what was all of that about? What are all those examples about? Well, he's speaking about the heart. The heart has to be changed. And if it's not, it will be demonstrated. And I hope that's clear to you. And you see how the scriptures fit together and why John makes the argument in this way. Cain is a picture, folks, of you without Christ. And what he's saying is, without him, every person is murderous Cain. And if you claim that you're a Christian on any other basis than transformation by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are a murderer. And murderers do not have eternal life abiding in him, in them rather. Now, let, let's go on to the next step so we can finish up this passage and we'll be ready to move on to the next section in our, uh, next week. And thirdly is the righteousness of love. Now, the issue is character. We act according to our character. And a murderous heart is the character of a person without Christ. Jesus said, Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. But there's a change when a person is regenerated. Now you have a new disposition. Now you have a new character. Now you've been given a new nature. And you have a different heart. And so now you have the character of Christ. And the Bible calls that Christ in you, the hope of glory. So a change takes place in the new birth, and when it does, the love of Christ will be evident. Now we notice then in verse number 16, the example of love. Now we've been given the example of hatred in verse number 12. That's Cain. He's the worst case. Cain is the worst because he killed his brother, and his motive was Abel's righteous. He's not. And so now we shift over to the very best example of love. And who is the greatest example of love? 16th verse. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I don't know if anything in the Bible is coincidental. I know in the original scriptures as they were given to us, God doesn't have coincidental things that are there. But there's something about... Um, Having the Bible divided up into chapters and verses, uh, originally, of course, we've talked about this many times, the original manuscripts have no divisions like that. You have a book, the name of the book goes on, and then the next book starts. You have no verses, you have no chapters, anything like that. But it seems kind of passing strange to me, and it can't be coincidental, I don't think, that God knew that at some point that, uh, people were going to put chapters in the Bible. Later on, they would put the verses in there. And this just does not seem to me to be a coincidence that 1 John 3.16 and John 3.16 have exactly the same message. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And 1 John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That just doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. God must have lined that whole thing up. He knew how it was going to work. Now, Romans says, Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commendeth is an important word here. This is Old English, and it simply means demonstrated. God demonstrated his love for us by the death of Christ for sin. And that's the greatest example. And do you know, folks, that it is impossible to frame this picture in any other way than by taking us right back to the cross of Christ. Now, what you'll hear churches today preaching is love and love and love and more love. They're always talking about love. But you find they never talk about hell. They never talk about suffering. And they never talk about punishment. They never talk about the blood. That's too gory for most people. And yet the cross of Jesus Christ is all of those things. And so how could you possibly preach the love of Christ and the love of God without preaching the cross? Here's what happened. Christ suffered hell on the cross. And I don't mean that in a metaphorical way. I don't mean it was just a really hard time for him. What I mean is that God laid the punishment of hell on Christ when he was on the cross. I mean, he suffered in a way that it's impossible for a mere human to suffer. Because he was God, he could endure infinite suffering. And so what happened there on the cross is that God put enough on him to suffer the eternal punishment of hell for everybody who believes in him. That's what happened at the death of the cross. There's suffering, there's punishment, there's bloodshed. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. According to John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, Romans 5.8, multitudes of other scripture, the love of God finds its expression in the only way that we can really understand it. The greatest expression that helps us to understand how God loved us is that Christ died for us. So you can't talk about the love of God. I mean, forget about all these people talking the love of God all the time unless you frame it with the cross. That's the greatest characteristic of his love. So he loved his people. The preaching of the cross, the punishment of hell, that's as far away from most people's thinking as it can possibly be. But without understanding the cross and understanding what Christ did there, you're never going to understand God's love. So John says that's our example. If you have his character, then you will lay down your life for the brethren, just like he laid down his life. Well, that poses another question to us. Then what does that really mean when he says we have to lay down our life for the brethren? Well, let me give you a couple of similar ways that, that show us this. The first one is uh, be on your listening sheet is the evidence of love. So does it mean that you're never going to be a Christian and you're never going to go to heaven unless you die for somebody? I mean, do you have to sacrifice your life in order to be a child of God? Well, it might surprise you. The answer to that question is yes. But you need to understand what I mean by yes. So let's go back to that opposite example of Cain. Do you have to kill somebody like Cain did to be a murderer? Well, no, we've just learned that anger is, is murder. I mean, it's, it's the same in God's book. I mean, the physical act does not have to be committed for you to be a murderer. And that's what you are when you're unconverted and you have evil in your heart. So do you have to physically die for someone to be a Christian? 
No, because we're still talking about the heart. And that is the actual evidence of our love, what's in the heart. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 34, 35. We know this scripture. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. That's a whole different ballgame, folks. I mean, what he's talking about now is self-sacrificing love, willing to give up yourself for another person. And that's put in different ways in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul calls it being kindly affection. He calls it being preferring one another. He says to esteem others better than you. Peter had a great way of putting it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren... See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So the evidence is not so much in terms of being a dying sacrifice, unless you mean dying to self. Rather, it's put more in terms of being a living sacrifice. This is what Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So love, then, is the means of revealing your Christianity. Do you have the attitude of heart that after all of these years of doing everything for yourself and thinking only about yourself, are you willing to put self down and consider the welfare of the other person? You see, it's the attitude of the heart that has to be changed. The attitude of Cain's heart found its expression in physical murder. But he was a murderer at heart already. And it just found its expression in the physical act. So in either case, whether it's in his heart or whether he commits the act, he's a murderer. He does not have eternal life abiding in him. And so similarly, the evidence of a changed heart is that it finds an outlet. It always expresses itself in some way. So closely related to the evidence of love is the expression of love. So John next tells us about that expression. And what he says is, you can't just mouth the words. Jesus didn't say, you know, I love you, and I'm going to lay down my life for you, but never actually do it. John says, you can't say that you love people and that you're willing to sacrifice for them and not actually do it. And so he puts it this way in verses 17 and 18. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do you know how the apostle James explained this and arrived at the very same truth? He has another way of putting it. John says that the absence of this kind of love is that we don't know God. And James says that the absence of this kind of love is that we have a dead faith. In James 2, verse 14, it says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and not works? Can faith save him? And as you've heard me explain many times, his meaning is, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith that it have not works is dead, being alone. Now do you understand what another 
term is for everything that I've just told you tonight? What is, what is another term for the explanation that John gives in John 3, verses 17 through 18, and what James says in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17? You know another term for what we've just read? We call it lordship salvation. And it's nothing short of this, that a person who is truly born again will always have the evidence of his faith in the expression of his faith. And so what you can't do is you can't sit on the sidelines and say, oh yes, I do believe. I am a Christian. I've changed from unbelief to belief, so I'm a Christian. You can't say that unless there is an expression of your faith. You can't say it and still keep a murderous heart that acts selfishly and never really surrenders to the Lordship of Christ. And surrendering to his lordship, this simply means active obedience in doing what Christ did. And so what does he say? As I have loved you, so you are to love other people. And friends, that is the sense of this passage. It's a dramatic contrast between Cain and Abel, between Christians and non-Christians, and really it comes down to this great difference between Christ and Satan. So... You have to have the outward expression. And the expression comes out of what's really deep down in your heart. And if you're a child of God, you don't act like you did before. It's like this. You can't, husband, you can't say to your wife, Honey, I love you. And then sock her in the eye. And you can't say to her, You're my soulmate. I finally met my soulmate. I love you. And then do everything that you can that's contrary to your welfare. You can't do that. And much less can you do that with God. You can't do it. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So you have murderous hate versus marvelous love, and only one of those is proof that you truly are a Christian. That's what John's trying to show us with this test. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. And Lord, I hope, hope that you would help us to learn this lesson and press it down into our hearts and to our minds that we must be a changed people. And that expression must find itself out in our everyday activities, what we do as we go through this life. And if we have not been changed, if we don't show that we've been changed, then we don't have any evidence that we truly do know you. And we understand, Lord, that the passage here is about assurance. It's not trying to feed us continual doubt, but it's trying to give us the attitude that we're going to look for the markers that really do show that we are Christians. And by that, we assure our hearts. Help us to understand that, Lord. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.